Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The lawyers are busy on many fronts in the Eric Greitens felony invasion of privacy case. The Missouri governor faces a May 14th trial in connection with allegations that he took a non-consensual photograph of his nude lover. We'll be talking about the legal aspects of the case with our legal roundtable panel. Joining me in studio to talk about the case and other legal matters are attorneys Bill Freivogel, journalism professor at SIU Carbondale. Mark Smith is associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. And Jennifer Joyce, former St. Louis Circuit attorney, also with us in studio. Lots to talk about today, but Jennifer, let's begin with you. The last time we got together, you were getting ready to hop into an RV and hit the road. Uh, yes. You're back, I see. I'm back. I'm back. We're going to be heading out again soon, but I'm here right now. Yeah. Enjoying retirement. But I are am. you retired? Um, I'm retired from being uh, the elected prosecutor of the city of St. Louis, but I have found some other projects to work on and grandchildren to hang out with, mm-hmm. so I'm pretty pretty busy. You have a new company? I do. My uh, colleague Susan Ryan, who is a uh, well-known uh, PR person in the city of St. Louis, Susan and I have started a business called Veracausa Group which stands for true cause. It's Latin for true cause. And what we're doing is we're working with prosecutors around the country, literally coast to coast, and uh, helping them with their communications and also uh, leadership and process development issues within their organizations. Are you working with Kim Gardner, perchance? Uh, Susan is working with Kim Gardner, but that's um, outside of our company. So I am not working with Kim Gardner um, but uh, my partner is. Yeah. So. Well, Kim is a busy lady these days, I'm sure, with all that's going on with the Greitens uh, situation. Yes, she is. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. It seems to me that the defense in this particular case has taken some hits recently. I mean, <clears throat> let me look down the, uh, the list here. They lost on the request for a different trial date than they wound up with. The judge refused to dismiss the case altogether, and they... Uh, the uh, defense wanted a bench versus a jury trial, and the judge ruled against that. Uh, are these serious consequences of the uh, in the case so far? Who wants to pick it up? Well, no? I think it's I think it's a serious consequence that uh, it'll be a jury trial instead of a bench trial because I think that he's he's most likely to end up with a jury of people who voted against him. Um, you know that uh, the uh, but, but I think the judge was uh, certainly you know, under the uh, state constitution uh, per, a person can ask for a bench trial, uh, but doesn't have a right to a bench trial, and it has to be with the assent uh, of the judge. And the I think Burleson properly thought this should be a, the, the people should people in the form of a of a jury should be making the decision. Is this a setup potentially, Jennifer, for an appeal? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, it, it is definitely unusual, though. I, in my over two decades as a prosecutor in the city of St. Louis, I cannot recall an instance where a defendant wanted a bench trial and that request was denied. Um, so even though legally um, it's appropriate that the judge has the ability to do that, it's highly unusual. Um, And I think it's very interesting, both the fact that the governor wanted a bench trial for reasons that I think Bill touched Mm -hmm. on, um, but also the fact that um, the judge is, 
insisting that it be a jury trial mm-hmm. in the city of St. Louis. I think that's very interesting, and I've been thinking about what could uh, Judge Burleson possibly be trying to accomplish with that because it is so unusual. Didn't he say, however, he wanted the people uh, to decide, as in a jury, rather than have it uh, be his own decision? Well, why is it unusual then? Why would we want that in every case? I mean, I think that would be great to have the people decide every crime. Remember, this is a Class D felony. This is not... uh, in some respects, it's a very important case because it's a sitting governor. But looking at it absent that, it's really not that the most serious type of case. So when we say we want the citizens to decide why this case. Mm-hmm. The the one thing, uh, you know, I, we talked beforehand because I was asking Jennifer, I, I don't remember ever seeing something like this tonight. And, and Jennifer, with much more experience, uh, you know, said that you hadn't seen it. The the one difference is we have a governor as the defendant. The a governor is the person. Our governor is the person who appoints judges, and so you know maybe the judge. Although the judge, you know, when you look at his order, it's just handwritten out, no no, no explanation. explanation, right? Um, but maybe, and and I'm just putting my own thoughts here. Maybe he thinks well. Um, it'll look bad because this is the guy who could then put me on the Court of Appeals or put my relative on the bench, and so I want to give it over to the jury. I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just saying maybe that's what he uh, was thinking. I think it's also interesting. We had the Stockley uh, case recently, which um, you know he he went to the uh, the judge said, "Sure, I'll, I'll try the case without the jury," and that right. that got a lot of people very worked up. That's true. I forgot yeah. about that. That is true. Um, and that was certainly a case I think the citizens should have decided. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought it was an interesting request on the part of the governor, to, though, to ask for a bench trial because it, it's a strategic advantage for him to have a bench trial. Why? But, um Because typically a judge will um, make a decision based on um, – just narrowly based on the law. Um, they are not as subject to juries as, you know, uh, emotional emotion, appeals right. are a, a slick trial lawyer or anything like that. That's all factored out when you have a judge. They've seen lots of trial lawyers. They're not going to be swayed by any of it. They're going to look at the law. And so that might be an advantage for the governor. It's usually an advantage for defense attorneys. Um, however, when you're the sitting governor and you're saying you didn't commit a crime, why are you closing the public out of this decision? You know, right. I thought the that opposite, that was a very, right. very interesting choice. So I think that's why now you're seeing the defense attorney mm-hmm. saying, yeah, we're good with a jury trial. You know, we can do yeah. that. It didn't take them long to say, no. oh, great, this is, we this can is do fantastic. That. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's what you do as a lawyer, no matter right. what it is. Yeah, no, that's good for us. <laughs> we'll, it's we'll, it's yeah, judo. You make your, yeah, your weakness, your strength, right. <laughs> so there, there are some states, Don, where you, you can uh, have a right to uh, – to a bench trial, mm-hmm. like Maryland is an example of that. You might remember the in the Freddie Gray case, there were um, some police officers who, who wanted a bench trial, and, the, and they ended up being uh, cleared. But yeah, I mean, Shirley Burleson doesn't want to be in the position that he saw his uh, you know his colleague in after the Stockley case. Yeah. What about the timing of the trial? Uh, the uh, Jennifer uh, Kim Kim uh, Gardner wanted the trial in November, I think, or late, right. late in the year. 
Uh, the governor's team wanted it in April, right. and uh, Burleson decided on the 14th. Is it an advantage or a disadvantage to either side with the timing of this thing? Well, I, I think, um, you know, cases never get better for the prosecutors the older they get. I believe um, that the request on the part of the circuit attorney's office to have the trial in November was just based on the general course of cases through the system and how long a typical case takes to get through the system. Um, and I think that's, and I don't know, I'm speculating like everybody else, but it seems to me that would be the reason why they would say we can try it in See, November because they've got other things on their docket. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't like a, let a lack of facts get in the way of my opinion either. And so I was thinking about <laughs> it and, and I thought, well, maybe it's because they don't have this picture and they're thinking the more time, the more likely we're going to get a copy. No, um, I don't think so. I think that they have, um, well, let me, let me say this. You can prove this case without the picture, okay? So it's, they've said they don't have the picture. I think they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt without a picture. Testimony is evidence. A lot of but times don't they, people don't, don't they realize have to prove that. that the, the picture was inappropriate? And so I, I think, that, you know, doesn't the statute require like certain body parts or something? I mean, how are they going to prove that without a... Testimony. I mean, there was someone else who was present there when the picture was taken. Her. Right. And she was blindfolded. Right. And then, and then he can not testify. Well, I, I, I believe, and I don't have specifics on it, but yeah. just reading the tea leaves and knowing what I know about how cases can proceed, I believe that they have figured out a way where they believe that they can prove this beyond mm-hmm. a reasonable doubt without the picture. So, Jen, so how did they prove the part about the, 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 the picture could be transmitted? Well, think about it. What does transmitted mean? This is a statute that isn't used a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, transmitted could mean a lot of different things. And so I focus on that word when I'm trying to figure out what they're doing. Um, and how they're going to prove this case. How did they, How was it transmitted? Um, you know, there could be a lot of different ways. If you have iCloud, that could be a right. transmission. Um, so it's, it, you know, my but feeling... But who's going to testify about that? Not she. Her, she can't. Why can't she? Why can't she? Well, she, what does she know about the iCloud or his phone? Or You don't know that. We don't know what well, she no, knows. That's true. Um, that's the thing is, you know, you... You don't talk about your case and right, your evidence. Right. That's and that's t- it's to protect investigations, and it's also to protect the defendant's right to a fair trial. The prosecutor is responsible for all of those things. Um, they are responsible for protecting the, the fairness of this trial. And so I, I think that it's appropriate that they're not going through their evidence publicly. Do you think there's any uh, – there is concern, obviously, on the part of the defense team that uh, that Kim Gardner has mishandled evidence somehow, mishandled the presentation to the grand jury. Do you have any sense that that could be, uh, in fact, the case? I will say that um, the – this is a really tough job, being circuit attorney for the city of St. Louis, and I, I feel like I can say that with, with authority. Um, I had the luxury when I was circuit attorney to not have D. Joyce Hayes second-guess me everything that I did, and I'm sure I did some stuff that raised some eyebrows. And so I would like to afford Kim the same um, uh, courtesy that I received from D. So... I can I can understand the argument that the defense is making. I've I've read it. I, I understand it. 
But um, it seems to me that the judge was not persuaded by it. And for me, that ends the inquiry there. Um, You know, I can look at things that Ms. Gardner does and and think about how I would do them differently. But the truth is that I really don't know what's going on in right. this case. I'm and that's not true there. for all of us. We don't have the mm-hmm. facts. We don't know what they know. And and I think your point, the, the motion was basically, you not you mispresented facts, but you mispresent the law. Well, my view of the law and your view of the law, they, they might be different things. And, mm-hmm. and the law is what the judge says it is. So if the judge agreed with it, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm less concerned with that part. One other item I wanted to bring up just because I was curious to, uh, as to how you might respond to this, Jennifer. There was at one point some discussion about having this thing televised, cameras in the courtrooms. What's your feeling about that? Is that a good thing for transparency? Is it a, a bad thing because it tends to lead perhaps to grandstanding, that sort of I think it's a good thing. I always, I always like to see more access and more transparency, um, you know, if every every case was televised, I think that would be terrific. Mm-hmm. However, that places a great burden of responsibility on the judge to control the courtroom. And some judges are better than others at doing that. I think we saw, those of us who remember the O.J. Simpson case, right. we saw an example of a judge who was not controlling his courtroom, Lance Ito. And that was uh, much more of a circus than it needed to be because of that. So if judges take control of the situation, and I have every reason to believe Judge Burleson is, is that type of judge, he would do, he would do a good job on this. Um, I think the more cameras, the more openness, the better. And that's been consistently my position throughout. However, there are jurors in the courtroom as well, and many of them would not not like to be identified. In some well, of these they, I think that you can do it, Don, as you know, as a television guy, um, you can place the angles so that you don't see the jurors in the courtroom. You know, Jennifer's a very uh, pro-media kind of uh, uh, former circuit attorney, and I mean, you love media yourself with with your you know, your social media. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, here I am, a journalist, and I actually have a different view. I mean, I That's don't. That's funny. I don't. <laughs> you know, I don't want. I don't want cameras in the Supreme Court. If I were Burleson, I don't want cameras in this in this court because I just think it makes people play to the cameras. And uh, and even though this is my my friend Mark Sableman who's representing the the fifteen um, you know media organizations that want there to be cameras. So I have to apologize to him, but uh, you know I just think it makes it into um, you know it makes it into a kind of a show trial, and right. I, I, so I think it's a bad idea. It's already a show trial. <laughs> okay, let's let's be real. I mean, there there's interviews going on on the courthouse steps every yeah. day. There's you know yeah. a lot of the the things that are said mm-hmm. are are posturing on both sides. So I mean that not having a camera isn't going to remove that aspect of it. Have to let it go at that for the moment because we need to take a break. So let's do that now. It's our legal roundtable panel day, and we have in studio Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Jennifer Joyce, the former circuit attorney for the city of St. Louis. Back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our legal roundtable panel, Bill Freivogel, Jennifer Joyce, and Mark Smith. One or two other things concerning Governor Brighton's that I'd just uh, enter into the conversation. The the husband of the woman involved in this case has sought a protection order, correct? Is that what we're calling it, a protection order? 
Are you familiar with that? No, I didn't know about that. I've read about that. Yeah. I'm just wondering, he he apparently is afraid that the Greitens camp uh, might might be a threat to him somehow. Is this grandstanding, or is this, do you think, something that could be possibly a valid need? <laughs> well, I haven't actually read the details. Uh, it sort of seems to smack of grandstanding. His lawyer is a grandstander-in-chief, yes. uh, yeah. uh, Al Watkins. Uh, so, you know, wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Again, to uh, the point that we were talking about before the break, this the, the show trial train has left the station here. <laughs> and, uh, you know... It's uh, that is uh, certainly Al Watkins is one of the starring people in the show. <laughs> he's he's uh, been to this rodeo before. Yes, it? he has. If, if, if you were going to have though, camera kind of going back to in cameras in the courtroom, I wouldn't I wouldn't start it on a high profile case like this. I would try. I mean, it seems like you know it should be like the board of aldermen that's just you know uh, broadcast and there's grandstanding going on there, but. Um, I mean, the jurors, I think, are going to be distracted by that. Now, the technology has changed. You can have much mm-hmm. smaller cameras, so it's not mm-hmm. like it would have been 40, 50 years ago. But mm-hmm. I I still worry, um, <clears throat> you know, like I just keep thinking of the um, O.J. Simpson trial and what, what a yes. train wreck that turned into. But well, the I, courtroom will be packed with people, packed yeah. with journalists. Journalists will be live tweeting. Yeah, they'll um, be drawing – yeah. For all intents and purposes, this is this is a live-covered event. And yeah. as a former television person, let me tell you, if you start with a low-profile case, there ain't going to be no cameras in that <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> yeah. End of, end of story. <laughs> now, what about, what about cameras at the Supreme Court? Now, that Bad I could get idea. behind. Oh, see, I could get behind that. Yeah. Why? Because it just, I mean, I don't want the, the justices already think they're so clever. And, and you know, they, for, are. For, they are. For, for them to, you know, a, a Scalia or, uh, you know, a Scalia or uh, Gorsuch to, you know, begin trying to you know, create this public persona of how, how clever they are. I just don't. You know, I don't want to see it. I, I used to love sitting in the courtroom and these, you know, these artists would come with their really big sketch mm-hmm. boards and all their colored pencils. And I, I would just enjoy watching them draw. You don't want to put those guys out of business. I okay, don't. So you're, you got to mer- <laughs> make artists. work argument, right? <laughs> well, the governor has got a problem on another front, too, and that is his charity. The mission continues. Yes. Uh, the attorney general has uh, issued 15 subpoenas, I think it's been, to yeah. try to get at the records there concerning... Uh, the use of uh, donor lists uh, with that. Any any thoughts about that from any of you with regard to the legal ramifications of this or whatever? Well, it does look as though that that could be creating additional legal problems for him. Uh, I think I I believe I read that Kim Gardner uh, was looking for that information. I think the House Committee has also um, um, ob- obtained that or been given that information. Uh, and the attorney general ha- has been looking into this. I mean, it seems as though it, it seems very clear from his settlement with the Missouri Ethics Committee that he had initially uh, misled or lied about supposedly not having had this list from the charity to use as his uh, fundraising, political fundraising uh, basis. Uh, it turned out he had had it. And and then, uh, as a result of some reporting, he had it even earlier than he than he acknowledged in his settlement with the ethics commission. So, yeah, I think there's potential. I think there's a potential there, problem. And there's two legal issues, as I understand it. One would be for this not for profit engaging if they if they gave it 
as an official act, that that may be a violation of what they're supposed to do as a not-for-profit. And then the second issue is if I get a list that has is something of value and I don't report it, uh, on my, it could be a campaign finance violation. But uh, the second one, I mean, it would be, you know, I think – there, people forget to report things all the time. They pay a small fine. It's not the end of the world. It, it, you get in trouble for lying about it. Is this a more serious uh, charge, perhaps, than a Class D felony? The other thing we've been talking about. I think potentially, yes. Mm-hmm. But but in the you know in the court of public opinion, it's the sex oh, sure. that yeah yeah that gets the attention yeah, no that people are going to pay attention that. to. Uh, a couple of items have uh, come up from people listening and, and emailing, what have you. One is this that uh, Jennifer Joyce made the point earlier. Why does she think Burleson is the kind of judge who would maintain control? Just uh, my experience with him. Um, he tends to, to run a very orderly, controlled courtroom. He's, uh, um, you know, there's some judges that, uh, to a fault, want to let everybody talk until they're done talking, and things that take 10 minutes, end up, should take 10 minutes, end up taking 10 <clears> hours, <throat> and, you know, things get out of control. Um, Judge Burleson does not do that. I've had uh, many uh, occasions to be in his courtroom and uh, have seen him be very orderly and uh, concise in how he runs things. Here's a point that's come up a couple of times on this program and elsewhere, and that is the fact that uh, Judge Burleson worked for Jay Nixon. Uh, He was appointed by Jay Nixon, and Jay Nixon is a member of the law firm that is uh, defending Eric Reins. Yes, and Jay Nixon obviously bats for the Democrats as does Ed Dowd until right, recently. Right. Yeah. Um, it's This whole case has got everybody switching sides. It's really interesting. Yeah, but that was, you know, the, the um, back to Mark's uh, point about about this Burleson uh, saying that he's not going to have a bench trial, sort of clearing away political questions. I noticed that the Post-Dispatch editorial page said that, sort of made All that right. very point and, and was, was noting the connection between Burleson and Nixon mm-hmm. and, um, and, and the Dowd law firm and mm-hmm. saying that this was a good decision on Burleson's point to part to clear away any kind of question about mm-hmm. legal, about political influence upon the trial. But this is a small legal community. I mean, it's hard. Everyone always knows everyone. That, that's, um, I mean, that was part of the deal when I was practicing law, you know, when the, the, the plaintiffs usually had unsophisticated clients. So I would make a big deal of talking to the plaintiff's lawyer because I wanted to undermine their confidence, and I wanted it to seem like it was, yeah, we all know each other, we're all pals. And, <laughs> but the truth is we kind of do all know each other, and, you know. Well, it should also be pointed out, and I think many people have made this case, that uh, Judge Burleson has a very high reputation, and his standards are very high, and people yes, have pointed does. that out. So, Okay, so let's move on. I wanted to bring in, uh, of course I did, because I'm a former television guy, I wanted to bring Stormy Daniels into this discussion. <laughs> And the reason I want to do that is because her attorney is a St. Louis citizen. Michael Avenatti is a, uh, went to school here, still has family here. I want to get your take, uh, and I'll start with you, Jennifer. Uh, get your take on him and his tactics. I mean, this guy is something else. He is something else. Mm-hmm. I, he, the first, from the first time I saw him, my husband and I were watching the CBS Morning News, and he came on, and he was grilled by everybody, and he did beautifully. 
And I thought to myself, wow, this guy's got it going on. And every time I see him, I mean, he's he's definitely got a style to him, but he's he's very smart, very aggressive. I think he's doing a good job. He wants to depose the president. He wants to do it within 60 and 90 days. And uh, I watched some television last night in which it was suggested that he's laying all kinds of traps to oh, make yes. that happen. Yes. What kind of traps are we talking about? He's he's very smart. Um I'm not familiar with the ins and outs of all the different traps, but I can tell you the general consensus is that um, Trump's lawyers are completely outgunned by this guy, that uh, Trump doesn't have anybody who can really respond effectively to him. I mean, this defamation case, I think, is sort of one of the traps. You know, he's trying to get this case out of arbitration and into court, into a courtroom. With a jury trial. Uh, so he can get to, to, to discovery. He wants Trump yeah. under oath. Right. Okay. And, and, you know, there is the Paula Jones uh, precedent that a, pres- a, pres- a president has to answer questions, you know, at his sort of convenience uh, in cases like this. I mean, it's exactly the same kind of uh, sim- similar kind of case. Um, and, you know, that that led directly Paula Jones, that that decision of the Supreme Court, my, my recollection, has led directly to, you know, the the perjury that uh, mm-hmm. that, that landed uh, mm-hmm. uh, Clinton in impeachment. Mm-hmm. And and for your listeners who are not lawyers who have never been deposed, I mean, you know, what happens is you go in a small conference room, so the lawyer from the other side, and you sit across from them if you're the deponent, and there's a court, back in the day, the court reporter, but they would swear you in, you're under oath. And then I might depose you for two days. I might depose you for four hours. I mean, I he can't wants, ever, He wants two hours. Yeah. I mean, two hours is a short time, but I'm sure he'll get to the meat of it. But, I mean, you're having to answer under oath, and um, and I've thought about what I'm going to do, and it's it's... It's a stressful situation. But I, you, I think two hours with Trump is like 20 yeah. hours with yeah. anyone because, else. Because he, he's, yeah, he's the kind of deponent you would love because you don't, you know, because he likes to talk and he, wants, right. he thinks he's smarter than you and he might be, but this, it's a fixed game. I know how to do, take a deposition, you know. How, how much uh, in terms of terms can be negotiated uh, in connection with a deposition? Can you say, well, we'll talk about this and not about this, that sort of thing? Well, with the president of the United States, yeah. uh, there would be more room for that kind of negotiation. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court and Paula Jones, I think, said that you got to work around the president's schedule. You know, you can't just like demand to talk mm-hmm. to him uh, at X particular time. Uh, you know, clearly you can't go into into you. They're not going to let you wander as much as you may be. But, able but to. the scope of discovery is anything reasonably reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. So it is very broad. You can basically go on a fishing ep- mm-hmm. exposition. Now, like Jennifer said, if it's two hours, then I got to. I can't. I'm not going to be uh, as goofing around. I'm going to get to the point. But still, it's pretty broad. And it would be rare in a deposition for um, the lawyer for the deponent to say, I'm going to object to these questions. And typically, you can only object to things like attorney-client privilege or if you start asking about somebody's sex life and it's life and it's not related to the case. I mean, otherwise, I can ask you about your tax records. I can ask you so about— So only the porn star, not the playboy— Centerfold. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe. Okay. Right. <laughs> do you think? Do you think? You got he exhibits. Will... <laughs> you bring in stuff to show him. Yeah. And after it ends, yeah. So then you would get. What do you think? Is he going to be deposed? I think so. If if they can get this out of arbitration, 
you know, if they can get it into discovery. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move along then. What a fascinating story this is from top to bottom, no question <laughs> about it. I want to talk about the situation with the county public defenders. Uh, Judge, uh, Judge Beach has proposed uh, that uh, this is an unconstitutional situation because the public defenders in St. Louis County um, are, are just so overloaded they are not meeting, meeting constitutional requirements for defense. Uh, we know how Bob McCullough feels about that, uh, about public defenders, because he's been on the program. Let's get the uh, view of a former circuit attorney in the city of St. Louis. Um, what do you think? Are the public defenders overworked, and do they need some help? Well, I think the question's larger than the public defenders. I think, it, by and large, the uh, the lawyers that uh, work in the criminal justice system uh, need more resources. The the courts need more resources. We need more resources on reentry programs, on diversion programs. You know, it's where I, I struggle is identifying one component of this whole system and saying that they don't have enough resources. When I've seen myself that the entire system is is kind of starved for resources. Um, but, but as but this resource is constitution constitutionally mandated. Isn't that the difference? Well, that's true, and I, I certainly would not want a public defender system that is not meeting its constitutionally mandated obligations. I mean, that would be the last thing that I would want as a right. private citizen, which I am now, and it was the last thing that I would want as a prosecutor, which I used to be. However, <laughs> and this is where we were talking earlier, this is an issue that has come up again and again and again, the public defender resources issue. And... Um, I, I don't know firsthand what's going on in St. Louis County, but I did see that the judge told uh, Mr. Reynolds to set to get back to him as to what his ideal caseload for his lawyers are, and I'm I have a problem with that. I, I I don't think that he should be able to say for himself what an ideal caseload is. Now I know there's been studies, but most of the studies that have been done have been um, highly criticized by various people. What I would like to see, and I think the smartest way to do this is what they do in some other states, is not have this centralized public defender system. I think the fact that it's a statewide system necessarily lends itself to a lot of inefficiencies. I can't speak to every county, but I can say in the city of St. Louis, I saw a lot of what I thought was questionable use of resources on the part of the public defenders. And um, I believe that if it were more set up like the prosecutors where they each county had its own office, that would lend to efficiencies. And I also like the idea of privatizing mm -hmm. a lot of these cases that the public defenders have. I think that would lead to efficiencies like too. Like the lower level? Mm -hmm. Or even some of the higher level stuff. I see... I see some inefficiencies that, that are related to big bureaucracy. Um, I'd like somebody to go in there, really. The state auditor last time, uh, Schweik, did an audit of the public defender's office. He found that there was a lot of money on the table that they weren't collecting. Mm -hmm. They did liens on every case, but they refused to collect them. You mm -hmm. know, and, and that's nice and everything, but it's taxpayers' dollars that are being used to fund the public defenders, and they're not getting that money back. Judge Beach had proposed a wait list. I don't know what that is. Do, what, what is a wait list? That's a wait list where somebody just stays in limbo until the public defenders say they have the capacity to take that case. And again, oh. we get back to the public defenders setting their own um, level of work that they're going to do. Um, I'm skeptical of it, I, as you can tell. I mean, won't Judge Beach then, once he gets their 
suggested level, he, he will be able to, I mean, he won't have to accept that. As well, my question is, how did Judge Beach decide that there's a constitutional crisis here without knowing what the level is and how far over? Did, did Mr. Reynolds go in and say, we've got way too many cases and we can't handle them? And he said, okay. Well, you know, is I mean, that the I, inquiry? I, I do think that the that the public defender did say, you know, we're way we're way overloaded. Like the the caseloads are twice what the recommended level is. Most of the public defenders have got 150 cases in St. Louis County, and the recommended level is 75. He well, said case eighty percent of the uh, circuit's uh, public defenders have caseloads preventing them from effectively. Uh, well, that's definitely something that should be looked at. But when in the past, when we've looked at how public defenders count cases, they have counted the same case um, at the preliminary hearing stage, at the trial stage, at the post-conviction relief stage. They count that case many times. And uh, the hours that they assign for different things um, just don't make sense to us when we look at them. And, and the prosecutors are the people that are in the courtroom with them and see how long these cases mm-hmm. take. I, I thought Judge Beach, in his, in his uh, opinion or, or order, um, was – I mean, he, he did a good job, I thought, of pointing out that we're talking about a constitutional, as Mark said, a constitutional requirement that you get effective assist- assistance of counsel. We have an ethical obligation on the part of the defense lawyer to provide that to, – to be able to provide that uh, uh, adequate assistance. And, and the judge himself has got an ethical obligation to make sure that the – that the public defenders who and, and other lawyers who are appearing uh, before him are and or her uh, are able to provide that adequate assistance of counsel. So, um, I mean, I, I give Judge Beach a lot of credit here. I think he's done a really good job as presiding judge of St. Louis County. You remember we had him in here to talk about the things he was doing with the Muni courts in, in the wake of Ferguson. And, uh, you know, I see this public defender. I mean, we talk about it. We've talked about this for years. Yes, and, we have. You know, I, I, I listen to Jennifer and I listen to McCullough, and I respect both of them, and I'm sure that they've got good points. But I, I mean, I, everyone else I talk to uh, tells me this is a this is a real crisis. Did I'm, you read the auditor's report uh, a few uh, years yeah, I ago? Did, I did read it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not just me and, and Bob right. McCullough. So. Yeah. I yeah. do think there might be some opportunities for creative solutions. You know, um, as a young lawyer, you're assigned, you get ass- appointed cases. Remember, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you had an appointed case. I had a couple of them. Yeah. And. And, you know, for a young, a young associate at a big firm, it was a way to get some trial experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you don't want to say to the big firms, well, you have to do all this free work. Um, but maybe there's some opportunities. Um, and, and I know the law schools do some work with this kind of stuff. So maybe there's some other creative opportunities yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, Take another break. We'll do that now. Come back and continue our conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back. As we continue our Legal Roundtable panel discussion, we'll change subjects now and talk about gerrymandering, which we have done on this uh, on this program before. Supreme Court is hearing uh, a case today concerning in Maryland, a Maryland case, uh, it's already heard a case uh, in, in Wisconsin and also ruled just a short time ago 
uh, in a Pennsylvania case. Bill, I know this is something you've been following. Uh, this It looks to be coming to a head. At some point, yeah. something's going to have to be resolved on this issue. I, I think this is a really important uh, – these are really important cases. Um, the, the, you know, the court has been sort of split in the past with the four more conservative justices uh, saying there's you, you just can't – the courts really can't get involved in gerrymandering because, of course, it's going to be political. And then for more liberal justices saying, you know, these blatantly politically gerrymanders uh, should be something that uh, the Constitution says something about and Justice Kennedy in the middle. So it's going to come down again, as it often does, to where does Justice Kennedy um, uh, end up. So these cases are, are – each one is is different from the other. The Wisconsin case that they uh, heard in the fall, that involves a challenge under uh, – to a statewide redistricting, and it's under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, the one that, they're, that they heard this morning uh, is the First Amendment, uh, and it involves only one district in Maryland. The, also, the, the other difference is in Wisconsin, the Republicans were gerrymandering the Democrats. In, in Maryland, it was the, the opposite. Right, yeah. it was the Democrats. Yeah. And uh, it seems as though, for the reports I heard uh, on my way down here, it seems as though uh, you know, the, the justices very much think that this particular gerrymander was very blatant, probably as blatant as any uh, that they had seen. Um, but again, they're in search of uh, judicially manageable standards that tell right. them, okay, here is where you actually have an unconstitutional politica- political gerrymander, and here is where you have just normal politics getting involved in how you draw the districts. And they're trying to find, you know, the, the, the conservatives on the court don't like statistical um, statistical answers to, to what the threshold should be. Because uh, it's think not that's even p- just pure gob- statistics. It's, it's like social science statistics. Social science which statistics. Which is where the gobbledygook comes in because <laughs> what what's, everyone agrees on now in five years, they say, oh, no, no, that was the old standard. Now we've got a new standard. This is much better. And so I think, you know, um, Roberts has talked a lot about, you know, this will undermine credibility in the court. We'll look like we're coming in second guessing. They're also worried if we start doing this, we're just going to get a huge influx of work. Everyone unhappy with the map will make us take a look. The argument on the other side is we can't ignore this. And, and yeah, the test, we may have a hard time coming up with a test, but this is not good for the country. To to allow gerrymandering and to allow people to become even more polarized and, and instead of having people kind of drift towards the middle, you've got, you get a barbell with, you get two extreme positions and and nobody listens to each other, and it's bad for the country. Um, so, so, so like in Wisconsin, they were able to do a statewide gerrymander that basically assured that even if the Democrats got a large majority of the votes for state legislature, that the Republicans would get the, the large majority of the delegates, mm-hmm. uh, of the representatives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't want to have that kind of situation regardless of where the parties, you know, who's benefiting and who, and who isn't benefiting. The, the, Florida, the Pennsylvania case is different. Yeah. So, I mean, the court didn't issue an opinion. They just said, we're not getting into this. Because it was the re- Supreme Court. Because the state Supreme court. Supreme court. It was decided on the state constitution. It was a state Supreme Court order of redistricting. The federal, the, the, there was no federal uh, constitutional issue involved. So what are we looking for here? A, a national, a single national standard? Is that, is that basically what we need? Or a commission that some <laughs> people have talked about? 
Well, I mean, I guess you could. Congress could appoint a commission. Some states have had commissions that have done redistricting. I think Arizona did that. Um, Maybe California also had had a similar kind of redistricting. So that's something that's open to the states. I guess you could have some sort of national approach. But, yeah, I think the Supreme Court will have to – is looking for – is there a, is there a way for them to describe a standard no. that will identify the um, unconstitutional political? And it'll gerrymander. probably come down. Four of them are going to say we should stay out of this. Period. Mm-hmm. Four are going to say we should get involved, and then we'll see what they. And then it's going to come down to Kennedy, and and he'll and, and what, he's either going to say one of three things. He's going to either decide to go in with the four who say no, you're, you were right. Let's stay out of this. He's going to say, no, we should think about it, but these uh, I don't think these cases are the right ones, or he's going to come up with a go along with some tests. He's, he's been saying for 20 years, well, we've got to figure, you know, got to think, figure got to think <laughs> about this longer. This could be his last year on the court, and uh, maybe he sees this as uh, trying to put another uh, you know, uh, little jewel in his legacy crown to you know, go along with same-sex marriage. You can tell you're a journalist. <laughs> flowery language there. What do we read into the fact that the court has taken three gerrymandering cases in the last few months, several months? Well, I think they are trying to answer exactly the question. Yeah, Bill mm-hmm. said. Yeah, I mean, this has been this has been festering for for years. Plus, I think it, there's been in in uh, in the public opinion. I think this has been identified by a lot of people on, in both political parties as being the source, uh, a a prime source of our inability to get along and to have. You know, hyperpartisanship and Congress not being able to get anything done. Also, mm-hmm. I mean, that last case was what ten years ago, at least. And also, I think, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking, man, everything else you can feed into a computer and you know, and give it parameters. Why, why, why can't you do it with this? You and know? Of course, there's no hyperpartisanship on the Supreme Court, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that, uh, Roberts wants to is worried that this will make it appear to the general public like there is even more. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to something else. The Missouri Senate has given initial approval, and I point out it is initial approval, to a bill that raises the age to be tried as an adult from 17 to 18. And uh, one of the reasons this is moving along, it says that uh, the sponsor of the bill says youth in adult prisons are 36 times more likely to commit suicide and 34% more likely to recommit crimes compared to their uh, peers who serve sentences in juvenile detention centers. Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, Jennifer? Yeah, um, I agree that uh, we should raise the age in Missouri. Um, If a juvenile commits a serious crime, there's a process where they can be certified by the judge to stand trial as an adult, if it's a murder or something like that. But just the general age of what, what cases get sent to adult court and what cases get sent to uh, juvenile court, I think that 17 is too young and 18 makes more sense. I always It always gave me pause uh, to prosecute a 17-year-old um, in large part because I reflect on how I was at 17. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, your brain is not fully formed. That's a and, big issue. Yeah. And I've made some decisions. I mean, I'm grateful every day that we didn't have social media and cell phone cameras and right. stuff. I mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have had the career that I had. Um, but... Um, and I'm also grateful that I had parents who were involved in my life, exactly, and, and, and that yeah. and that I didn't get caught, right? And that um, the, a lot of good fortune, right? Uh, and and you think 
you know, but for all these things, that might have been me. I just can't. Um, very few people in the city of St. Louis actually go to prison. There's a lot of probation and things like that. But if you're held in a jail pretrial, I can't imagine anything positive coming out of right. a 17-year-old on a minor crime going to be in a jail for mm-hmm. a few few months. I, I mean, okay. I think that's a horrible thing. And it seems to be part of a general little maybe <clears throat> pendulum swing back to say, what are we trying to do with prison? Mm-hmm. You know, before it was just punish, 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 and three strikes and you're out. Um, and now we're starting, I think, maybe to say, is that really the right way to go? I agree. Are we helping our society? There's a sea change yeah. across the country going on right now. Um, we're moving much more away from uh, the prison-centered criminal justice system and much more toward trying to find alternatives to that. Right. Let's take a call or two, as time will allow. Uh, and time is getting away, but we'll bring in Susie calling from Rock Hill who wants to go back to the public defender issue. Go ahead, Susie. You're on the air, Thank but make you. it quick if you would. Thank you. I will. It goes along with the, what you're talking about right now. I work in the jail several times a week as a volunteer, and anyone that says that, that the prosecutors, uh, the uh, the defense, uh, uh, court-appointed defense people aren't overloaded just doesn't know what's going on. It's incredible how many people are in jail waiting as long as two years because they are not plea bargaining, sometimes because they're totally innocent. They need their day in court, but they, if they can plea bargain, they can get out right now. And it's very sad how many people wait and wait. And wait. one man's life died while he was waiting to prove his innocence, and he was innocent, and he was let go after two and a half years. Okay, Susie, uh, thank you for the call. It's true, Jennifer, is that most of these cases are pleaded out? Uh, yes, most yeah. of the cases are pleaded out. Um, most of the people who are arrested actually committed the crime that they're charged with. Um, I totally understand Susie's concern. We don't want people waiting years to go to trial. That is not a function of public defenders being overwhelmed, though. That's a function, as I said earlier, of the system in general being Mm -hmm. overburdened. Uh, They need more judges. They need more ability Mm -hmm. to process these cases through the pipeline. That's not a logjam caused by public defenders. Uh, Two two provisions of Judge Beach's order, uh, I mean, I think sort of go to to this. Uh, One is, uh, he says, one of the things to look at is whether any cases can be disposed of without the imposition of a jail or prison sentence and to allow such cases to proceed without uh, provision of counsel. So that's a way to ease the burden on the public defender. Also, modify the conditions of release ordered in any case in which the defendant is being represented by uh, a public defender. Uh, so, I mean, I think he's talking in terms of of trying to find ways to not have the situation Susie's talking about where a person is is spending a long time mm-hmm. in jail uh, and, and not getting the adequate defense that they might get. I can tell you right now in the city of St. Louis, people are waiting a long time to get to trial mm-hmm. because there's been such turnover in the prosecutor's office. And so those cases get passed along from lawyer to lawyer. Mm-hmm. And the delay there is a function of resources in the prosecutor's office. So delay does not necessarily mean public defender issues. I wanted to get one other subject on the table before we have to quit, and that is the president has uh, stated recently that he is in favor of the death penalty for drug drug, uh, dealers. Uh, He says, if we don't get tough on drug dealers, we're wasting our time. Attorney General Jeff Sessions apparently is right in lockstep with that. What do you guys feel about uh, about Seem, that? You know, that sea change we were talking about, mm-hmm. this seems to be going in the other direction. And, yeah. and, and Jeff Sessions <laughs> seems to be very, you know, anti-drug, 
And, you know, once again, I think we're also having a sea change, you know, with marijuana, the idea that it, our, our views are, as a society are, towards it are changing. You can agree or disagree, but this seems to be going. And I know he's talking about the, opo, uh, the um, opiate. Heroin, yeah, the opiate. But still, I think it seems kind of contrary to where the rest of the country is going. Jennifer, what do you think? Well, now I can say, because I'm not a public figure, I'm not a big fan of the death penalty. I don't think that it accomplishes a whole lot. We just survived the 25-year spectacle of the Reginald Clemens case. Mm. Um, You know, I I think that it drags things out. A lot of money is spent on it, and this is money that could be spent on drug treatment, which would really affect uh, the opioid crisis instead of, you know, Death, more death penalty. Yeah, to treat that as a health issue, exactly. a public yeah. health issue. Yeah, there are huge resources, as Jennifer knows, that are required to handle these uh, these death penalty cases. I think I think I I read that only three people have been executed under the federal uh, death penalty statute in the last uh, you know, last decade or so. Um, and uh, I mean, there is the possibility of a capital. Uh, punishment in some uh, drug trafficking cases, uh, but it just hasn't been uh, implemented. have to leave it at that. Uh, I want to thank you all so much for being with us. Interesting discussion today. It is. It always is with our le- legal roundtable panel. Jennifer Joyce, great to see you again. Good to see you. Will Freivogel, Mark Smith, thank, thank you. you all. Tomorrow on St. Louis on the Air and our next installment of Sound Bites produced with Sauce Magazine, we'll explore Indian cooking. We'll also take a look at Dan St. Louis's new Horizon 6 concert featuring three nationally renowned choreographers, three local professional dance companies, and three world premieres. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. It's a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.